I'm J.R. Jameson, Executive Director of Indiana Campus Compact. And I'm Emily Shields, Executive Director of Iowa Campus Compact. And this is the Compact Nation podcast. (laughs) Yay! If this is your first time listening to us, you can always go back and listen to our introductory podcast, which will give you a little more information about what our show's about and what the Compact Nation is. You can also learn more about us at compact.org podcast. Check it out and find out more about Campus Compact, about our podcast, and about the work we do across the country. You know, the interesting thing is I didn't necessarily grow up in a family where we volunteered. Community engagement was not a part of what we did. My dad was a plumber and my mom was a secretary. And so I grew up in a very blue color home. We just didn't volunteer. I mean, we were involved in our church and we did all of that, but we didn't necessarily, you know, go volunteer at a soup kitchen or a homeless shelter or or any of those things. And it really wasn't until I was late in college around my junior year that I started volunteering at all. And part of what brought me into this is really selfish. I had a crush on someone who I was really, really interested in. And this individual was really into volunteerism. And I thought it was kind of weird. I was like, ugh, why would anyone do that, right? But I really wanted to impress this person. And so I found myself in the offices of Student Voluntary Services at Ball State University, signing up for an after-school tutoring program. And I was a little nervous. And my first day, I went out to motivate our minds after-school center working with about first through sixth grade students. I was told I would have a fifth or sixth grader, and I was given an eighth grader. But I found myself with this junior high student, and he only knew sight words, which is like at, the, but, and. And I just really started to question our educational system. It's interesting because um, my entry point was similar to yours in that it was about questioning our education system. I took a class sophomore year in college at the University of Iowa called The Politics of Education. We read Jonathan Kozel's book, Savage Inequalities, and I grew up, you know, in Iowa pretty comfortably middle class. My dad was a postal worker and my mom um, was an operating room technician I'm first generation in that, you know, first generation, like four year traditional college, because that's not what my parents did. Neither of them got four year degrees. I grew up in enough of a bubble that the things in that book shocked me in terms of what other the other experiences people were having in our same country and our same education system. It's interesting that you said somewhat similar things, because I think there is a common thread amongst a lot of people who are interested in doing higher education, community engagement work, of questioning traditional systems of higher education. I mean, I honestly think that's a big part of it. Of And maybe often, sometimes, from an outsider perspective, you know, someone who doesn't have a generational relationship with higher education necessarily, um, coming in and saying, why does it work this way? 
So I started thinking about my place in the world. And when I had gone to college, I wanted to be a travel writer. That's what I wanted to do. That's what I went to college for. I wanted to travel all over the world and write stories about it. And suddenly that didn't seem so important to me anymore. So when I graduated from college, I put away my bag, I put away my passport, and I joined AmeriCorps. And I worked in after-school tutoring centers uh, in the inner city for one year and 1,700 hours, uh, basically working with kids just like the eighth grader I worked with. And that experience changed my life in multiple ways. But most namely, I decided at that time that was the career path I wanted. I'd approached one of my mentors from Ball State and said, hey, I would love to do this kind of work in higher education, but work with college students to get them engaged in the community, to help them find their passion while they're in school to connect in that way, just like I had. And he looked at me and said, you can never get a job in higher ed with just a bachelor's degree. You're going to have to go to grad school. I was like, grad school? You know, like that wasn't even on my radar. I was like, no, I don't want to go back to school. I'm a first-gen college student. And Definitely a first-gen grad student, right? I was accepted into a grad program. I got my master's in higher administration and started working at Ball State right out of grad school as a program director for civic engagement. Also with that, I became a liaison to Campus Compact. And so that was really my first connection to what the Campus Compact movement was. And I met all these people at the Indiana Campus Compact meetings who were doing amazing work at their institutions and in their communities. And I felt like I was at home with people who were just like me. And I knew that one day I wanted to work for Campus Compact. And when a very entry-level position became available at Indiana Campus Compact in 2005, I jumped at the chance to apply for it and was fortunate that I was hired. And I've been with the organization for 11 years and I've held three different positions and now I'm currently the executive director. I think it's some of my observations about the, the people we work with. You know, you meet a lot of people who are first-generation students, I think. Um, you know, you, you meet a lot of people who just sort of can envision a different way of education and want to be a part of that. So that's one of the main things I felt was really cool. I kind of, from there, got involved in politics, and, and so my preferred form of social change has never really been direct volunteerism, and it's more advocacy and, and politics. I did work as an AmeriCorps VISTA in uh, higher education community engagement office in Texas at Our Lady of the Lake University. Just because working on a campus seemed accessible, seemed like something I knew how to do. Working in San Antonio was really my my goal. Working in a part of the country where the culture was very different was really my goal. So that's kind of what I was looking for. And then this was the most attractive position. And then, you know, I, after that didn't work in higher ed for a long time. And I went back to politics, worked on campaigns for several years, you know, worked in government after one of those campaigns was successful and then found this kind of came back around to this as an idea. And it does pull together a lot of threads of things in my life that I care about We've talked about before just the idea of being involved in in your community, being a part of the solution, um, being involved in our democracy and in the political process and the role that education needs to play with that and the potential for education to be an equalizer. Um, I don't think we've achieved that potential, but I think it's still 
exists and it's a goal I hope we're all working towards. I am Andrew Seligson, president of Campus Compact. And who is Andrew Seligson? The son of my parents. So that that's who I turn out to be. And the way I mean that is that when I think about who I am and what's important to me, it's an extension of who they are and were and, and what their stories have been. So my father was a Holocaust refugee. He and his mother and sister escaped from Nazi Germany. His father did not make it out and died in a, a Nazi camp. And my father, of all the people I have ever known, is the person who most valued living in a democratic society, living in a free society, living in a place where diversity was respected, where people could live their lives according to their own plans and dreams and deepest beliefs. Uh, and that has had an incredibly powerful influence on me. And my mother, uh, she spent her career and much of her volunteer time since she has continued to be involved in, in fighting housing discrimination. So one of the things I learned through my mother was that discrimination is real. It persists. It's, you know, it exists on the basis of race, on the basis of ethnicity, sexual orientation, disability, age. And if people aren't actively engaged in work to, to change that, that that's a persistent feature of our world. And so those, those things about my parents and the fact that, you know, they spent all their spare time at community meetings of different kinds and involved in the political process and involved in citizen organizations, all of those things, uh, to me, that, that pretty much explains how I ended up the way I did. This month, I was honored to sit down with Tim Eatman, co-director of Imagining America and associate professor of higher education at Syracuse University. If anybody knows the power of stories to heal besides me and my friends at The Facing Project and Campus Compact, it's Tim and his friends at Imagining America. Imagining America's history is one that grew side by side with Campus Compact and has continued to give a voice to untraditional engaged scholars. By the late 1990s, the national conversation about higher education civic purpose was well established, reinvigorated during the previous decade. Newly created centers for service learning and community engagement partnerships were advancing higher education's commitment to engagement. But values of reciprocity and mutual benefit sometimes went unrealized and humanities, arts, and design were underrepresented. Within this context, Julie Ellison and David Scobie were developing an engaged arts and humanities presence at the University of Michigan, especially through Scobie's Arts of Citizenship program. Across the country, there was recognition of an informal movement growing among artists, humanists, designers, and other scholars in the cultural disciplines who passionately wanted to claim engagement at the core of their identities as intellectuals and as artists. Imagining America was launched at a 1999 White House conference initiated by White House Millennium Council, the University of Michigan, and the Woodrow Wilson National Fellowship Foundation. The name Imagining America reflected the theme of the White House Millennium Council that focused on renewing participation in all walks of U.S. life. Honor the past, imagine the future. The 1999 conference participants became the basis for what would become Imagining America's consortium of colleges and universities, and the University of Michigan agreed to be the initial host campus, with Julie Ellison as its founding director. 
In 2007, Syracuse University became the next institutional host, and Jan Cohen Cruz served as director through 2012. Since 2012, Imagine America has been led by co directors Timothy Eatman and Scott Peters. Imagine America is currently comprised of more than 100 college and university members and community partners. Annual programming includes a national conference, cultural organizing institutes, collaborative research, and action projects. Imagine America contributes resources to an expanding membership. They offer opportunities to undergraduate and graduate student leaders, and they provide significant leadership to the field of engaged scholarship and higher education. In this first episode of the Compact Nation podcast, Tim and I sat down together as two colleagues who love storytelling and discussed his path to higher education and his path to imagining America. We also discussed how education and the arts may just be a big part of the solution to heal the hurt in our nation. But sometimes, as educators, we have to acknowledge our privilege and just get out of the way and take the time to understand that stories are patched together and our stories can create the quilt of humanity. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Tim Eatman. You asked me a question about my own story and about how I come to the work of what I commonly refer to as publicly engaged scholarship. I'm from Harlem, New York, second generation, both sides. Dad is a pastor and and uh, my parents are educators. And I became sensitized to the importance of rich, deep, meaningful, community engaged work really in the in the context of my orientation family. So when my dad finished his graduate work at Teachers College, he was teaching in the New York City public school system, uh, but he was also in seminary. And when he finished uh, seminary, he got called to a church. Uh, frankly, uh, he determined that his work with the New York City public school system should end precisely because he did not see where the vision of the public school system was really touching the deepest felt needs of particularly traditionally underserved students in in that system. And he announced, he and mom announced that we would be opening a school in concert with the, the church in Mount Pleasant. And, you know, it was funny to me because I figured, well, you know, opening a school would take probably three or five years of planning, right? And then the fundraising would be another six or seven years. I was in seventh grade at that time and very happy to be in public school. And um, I looked up in um, <laughs> the fall and was sitting in the social hall of that church on 81st Street as an enrolled student in Mount Pleasant Christian Academy. Really what helped me cut my teeth on this notion of community-engaged work. It was really that work of, of education in the context of the life of the spirit there in Harlem, New York. And now, 35 years later, I'm the first earned PhD. I'm on the board of the school. We've had scores of hundreds of students to go through the school and you know achieve all, all manner of, of degrees and accomplishments. And it, it had been really important for me to see firsthand how a community-based, in this instance, faith-based organization could interface with university. I think it's a fascinating story that makes complete sense, the trajectory of your career and your development. Were there any surprises when you entered the realm of Imagining America and working with artists uh, and scholars for public life, the difference in the research approach? I got pushed outside my comfort zone. 
I was ready to, you know, do the data collection, the survey stuff and, to, you know, try to crunch the numbers. And, you know, I was talking to Julie about all of these charts and she said, no, no, <laughs> no, <laughs> we will have some of that. But no, we, we've got to get more sophisticated in, and I appreciate her mentorship there. Tim, she says the statistics and the empirical analyses are critical. They represent the skeleton of the phenomena. But the meat and the flesh and the sinew are about the stories, right? And so I was pushed. I conducted all of the interviews with the tenure team members like Judith Romaley, you know, folks like George Sanchez and David Scobie and Craig Calhoun and Devorah Lieberman and uh, all of the, the 19 tenure team initiative members. But Conducting those narrative interviews, listening to their stories, culling the uh, emergent themes and being able to be exposed to the power of qualitative research really has made me a more sophisticated researcher. And, you know, I, I have to say that, you know, I, I recognize, you know, research in a different way when I approach it now because of, of the many opportunities I have had to engage with people who, who are thinking about knowledge making in a range of ways. Uh, our network of, of colleagues within Imagining America uh, are doing amazing work with games and, you know, with public murals and with interrogating the notion of civic professionalism and assessing the practices of public scholarship. And I have, I'm often surprised, like, wow, oh my goodness, that's another dimension of knowledge making. And it does what I think we need to do, which is, to respect the blind spots, yeah? I'd love to hear Kathy Davidson talk about, you know, the uh, neuroscience research that just demonstrates, you know, how healthy it is that our mind shuts some stuff out in order for us to, to just be able to focus and, and to advance certain lines of work. But that means essentially that we have to be clued in to the blind spots. And so in the fullness of the disciplines, that helps us, you know, uh, achieve that goal. We have to understand that what we think we know about community engagement and community interactions are often tremendous blind spot for us academics because of the way that we've been socialized. I am surprised often by what I'm learning about how powerful different types of research and modes of inquiry can be. I feel like narratives are at the heart of all of this and understanding each other's stories. Narratives connect us. They create forms of understanding across difference. I'm curious to know what role, if any, can arts play in healing the racial divide? In oh, nation? man. Yeah. Wow. Oh, man. Um, I think that arts is a special sauce, as is the humanities, right? You know, the kind of humanities that I'm talking about where philosophy is understood as really interrogating the, the question of, of human purpose and connectedness, right? I'm talking about arts like Judy Baca advances with the L.A. mural, mile-long mural, Judy Baca at, at UCLA, who has brought community members and civic organizations and gang members together you know, around, you know, this artistic expression that helps them to be cognizant of the, the important histories and the interconnectedness of the histories of that community. I'm talking about community-engaged theater that Director Emerita Jan Cohen Cruz writes about, right, that really gives us a pretend space 
to take on and try on and interrogate some of these critical issues in ways that we would not otherwise. I'm talking about story circles, right, that help to levelize the power relationships in, in any particular context that, that help us to, to, to really understand that, you know, while you may have more status than me in the academy or wherever, your story is not more important than my story. <laughs> I mean, right. <laughs> so, you know, this question of design and what it means to create spaces that are healing spaces in communities demonstrates just a myriad of options for the kind of work that will lead to the amelioration that we're, we're discussing here. I don't know about you, but I know some mornings I wake up and I just think, like, I can't do this much longer. This work is really tiring. But then when we sit down with someone like Tim and I hear how he's continually influenced by this work, or when I hear a conversation with Andrew and I see how he gets behind people as well who are making a difference in their communities, it just inspires me and re-inspires me to know that the work that we are doing is really important and it can be healing for communities as long as we're working with communities and not just giving them a product. I completely agree. I First of all, very much agree that it's hard to keep going sometimes. And it's not really that the work is, you know, so challenging or that there's a lot of pushback even necessarily. It's just like getting it to really be prioritized and deeply understood and that kind of thing just requires so much persistence. It is two steps forward, one step back all the time in working with I remember campuses and working with communities and it, it is hard to see the big picture of what we're achieving sometimes. So yeah, I do. I hope that's one of the things we can bring with this podcast is that big picture of what's being accomplished to help people who are doing this work, see that and understand that and not get too burnt out, <laughs> which I think is certainly an issue. The healing that he talked about was so interesting to me. It helped me to think about some of the conversation that's been happening in higher ed a little bit differently. So some of the conversation about trigger warnings and safe spaces, I understand both sides to a certain extent. I understand the need for that. I also understand the the pushback. You know, I have children. I don't want my children to just be kept in a bubble. We need to be confronted by things. But I think what we also have to realize is that lots of people have been confronted by things and need to heal. And we need to figure out how education further supports healing, allows people to do that in the way that makes sense to them and to talk about that openly and gives them the space to do that. Um, without creating an environment where there's a lack of free speech or there's so much carefulness that people don't get exposed to new ideas and new thinking. Yeah, it's interesting. I think for me, um, a, a related kind of language w was uh, that kind of I learned a lot about and through uh, came to me when I was working in Camden, New Jersey. So I was previously associate chancellor at Rutgers Camden and many people are familiar with Camden as a kind of famously uh, poor city economically, famously violent city. And 
while I was there, I had the opportunity to learn about a kind of interrelated set of trauma-informed practices. Uh, so trauma-informed responses to health crises, to the crisis of violence, and the, the basic idea that when you are dealing with a community who has endured what a community like Camden has over many decades, uh, everybody in the community knowing people who've been murdered, everybody seeing uh, domestic violence from early in their lives because it's the prevalence is extremely high, everybody seeing circumstances in which people suffered because they didn't have adequate health care. When you have a whole community of people who have faced those kinds of experiences, whatever you want to deal with, whatever action you want to take to move forward, you have to take those histories into account and think about how you are working from those experiences to a better place. You can't just kind of pretend that they didn't exist. And that's what I think about in the context of healing right now, that it, it takes kind of stark honesty about where we've come from and where we are in order to build to something else. And in that context, I think higher education for a couple different reasons has to play a central role. One of those reasons is just that higher education has been the, the stepping stone to opportunity, but therefore also the kind of block on opportunity for uh, generations of people, depending on kind of where they were positioned in the country. So recognizing that history, the exclusion that higher education has been part of, but also the fact that for many, many others, it has been a pathway to opportunity and thinking about how you open those doors more consistently, that, that has to be part of the story. I also think and I think this was one of the very interesting things that students on campuses in many cases were calling for, that universities, because they are centers of knowledge, have the opportunity to, in substantive and meaningful ways, tell the stories that have led us to where we are. So if college, you know, I think Georgetown University is an incredible example of this right now, that they are publicly reckoning with their relationship to slavery through their history and their relationship to racism and white supremacy. And that's not an easy thing to do. And, you know, I know President DeJoya has encountered resistance uh, from many quarters in doing that, but I think has done a really tremendous job of, of bringing people along to see that that's something that a university has to do. And also it's, a, it's something a university is uniquely equipped to do. So I think for us, if we are focused on thinking about our own role in being a lever for change, but also being brutally honest with ourselves and about ourselves, you know, I think we can be a, a part of that broader healing. So this has been our first episode. Thank you for listening. We will be back next month. We want to hear from you. Do you have ideas for people we should be interviewing, topics we should be covering, hard-hitting questions we should be asking? Send us your ideas at podcast at compact.org. You can also hit us up on Twitter. Use the hashtag compactnationpod and we'll find you or send us a direct message. I can be found at Emily J. Shields. My co-host J.R. Jameson can be found at J.R. underscore Jameson. And of course, our esteemed president, Andrew Seligson, can be found at Compact Prez. That's P-R-E-Z because he's cool like that. Compact Nation is produced by Naval Mahdi at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, on behalf of Campus Compact and its network of 1,100 colleges and universities across the United States. To learn more about Campus Compact, check it out online at compact.org. 
We will see you next time. I'm JR. I'm Emily. Until then. Bye. <laughs> Do you remember Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous at the end? Robin Leach would be like, until oh next time, God. champagne dreams and caviar kisses. This is going to be a weird podcast if we end talking about champagne, caviar, and I don't, I don't know what I've gotten myself into. Habiba, I'm just wondering if you could give us some feedback on our first episode. 